You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, folks, today we have our interview with Rachel Held Evans that we recorded back in March. March. It was Beginning March of March. 6th, right. Yeah. And we were going to air this actually a few weeks ago when Rachel was ill, and we d- thought that was that just— That was not, on the schedule on the months schedule. ago when yeah. we first recorded it right. to have it air then, and— it just didn't seem right, no. and it wasn't right. So so we talked to the people who we needed to talk to, and since Rachel's passing, we were encouraged to put this up. And we, we really want to do that because it was just such a wonderful time that we had with Rachel back in March. And, you know, so we left it as is. You know, we didn't do anything with it. We just wanted it up there because it was a fun time. You'll see us bantering back and forth and, and all that. And uh, it's it's a good memory. And and we that's why we're putting this out there. And But we, we felt that we owed an explanation to people, like, why are you doing this? And and it's really for that reason. Just, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, great love and admiration and respect for Rachel. And we're, you know, just like many other people, just sort of crushed to see her die so young. Mm-hmm. And and we wanted to do this. And we think it's it's a good thing for people to hear who loved her too. And Maybe, you know, put a smile on your face uh, every once in a while during the airing of this well, uh, and, podcast. And honoring Rachel for, I, I just, you know, one the big a big loss for me uh, with Rachel's passing was she was just so, uh, she embodied the average person, the mm-hmm. normal person. When right. we talk about the Bible for normal people, I feel like we had the same mission. She mm-hmm. was trying to translate the Bible and make it interesting and relevant and appealing to everyday people again, and her book inspired, mm-hmm. I think, did that really well. She's just such mm-hmm. a good writer, and so for me, it was almost like uh, losing a partner in this mission to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. And I think that's one of the reasons we got along so well with Rachel is we just were always on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. We were speaking the same language, and so that what's what made the conversation so much fun is you know those people that you can just have the shorthand, you kind of have a code with where mm-hmm. you understand what each other is trying to say. You have similar backgrounds and experiences love for the Bible and yet sometimes ridiculed or brought into church discipline in some Mm -hmm. cases for what seems like for your love of the Bible, but it's because you're coming to conclusions that people don't appreciate. And uh, that's that love for the Bible just really comes uh, out in our conversation with Rachel for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Rachel had a lot of courage. And um, I think being a woman too, it was just very, very difficult sometimes. But Man, she pulled it off, mm-hmm. you know, and Rachel was just – yeah, I should say uh, when I when I left my earlier job at Westminster and I was thinking about doing some popular writing, I had just met Rachel briefly before, but I emailed her and she was just so willing and just enthusiastic about giving me guidance about what does it mean to like do this kind of writing because I really wanted to do that. She's she's one of two people I spoke to early on and, and the stories that many people have told is how she goes out of her way to basically help people and to use her platform to to help other people. And I was one of those people too. So I, I owed Rachel a huge debt of gratitude for that too. Yeah, and I, I have two two of those stories. My first introduction to Rachel was when I was a pastor and uh, one of my people in my congregation brought actually the book to me, Evolving in Monkey Town, mm-hmm. and said, this book is changing my life. I think we should do a book study on it. And so we formed a small group with her book. And it really was uh, just made a lot of impact on the people in, in my congregation. And then when we moved to Phoenix, where I was teaching, we were part of the small group, a uh, house church, I guess, in some ways, but there were only maybe 10 or 15 people. And Rachel was coming through and she went out of her way to spend, you know, she has a a big platform. She's written a few books and she went out of her way to spend time with 10 or 15 of us yeah. and and worship with us. I think we took communion that Sunday and just participate fully and really engage and there was always just a sincerity about that that she always had time uh for everyone. So yeah, uh, that was always um important to me. So take this podcast as it's intended, just as a celebration, really, and as a way of saying thank you, and just a good memory of of someone who uh, just had a great impact on a lot of people and who was just a lot of fun to talk to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All, All right, folks. well, let's get to this conversation with Rachel Held Evans. What we're really calling for is, I don't think is a new way of reading the Bible, but more of an old way of reading the Bible, which is with more respect for 
the genres that are present there, more respect for the cultures from which scripture emerged, and more respect for the fact that, you know, it's not a rule book. It's not a magic eight ball. You know, this is a book of wisdom that's meant to guide us to wisdom. Well, welcome. We should say welcome back to yes, the podcast, Yes, welcome Rachel. back, Rachel. I am so honored to be a returning guest. We're like that your main gig. very cool. <laughs> yeah, Pete are. just takes it and just runs with it. He just goes too far too fast. Um, it's so what I do. We want to begin with the the book that you have recently written. I think the last time we had you on, you were working on this book called Inspired, and it's a book about the Bible. Pete has just come out with a book about the Bible. So we wanted to just talk about this kind of moment that we find ourselves in where the Bible seems to be of great interest all of a sudden. Maybe you can, as you've wrote the book and as you've kind of spoke about it and talked to others about it, what have you, have you noticed that as well? Oh yeah. I mean, and I think it's great. Uh, Sometimes people will say, are you concerned that there's all these sort of competing titles out there about the Bible? Um, Rob Bell, wrote a book in the last year about the Bible, Pete. Um, uh, there's a new one from uh, Melissa Flores Bixler coming out about the, the Old Testament that is just really fabulous. And to me, it's just, it's great. I love it. It's like doing exactly what um, I had hoped Inspired would do and that I think the Bible invites us to, which is starting conversations uh, around how we read the Bible and interpret the Bible and engage the Bible in community with one another. So, I think it's it's really good to see people kind of wrestling with and rethinking the Bible. I just think that we're at a moment culturally, uh, particularly here in the U.S., I guess, um, where we're seeing that how we have been, at least how evangelicals have been reading the Bible over the last few decades, is just untenable. You can't keep reading it like an instruction manual or a science book or a history book. It, it falls apart when you impose that, those standards on to it. And I think just a lot of us hit that reality kind of at the same time and are trying to uh, sort of forge a path forward because I think what happens is a lot of people encounter that reality and they just want to be done with the Bible for good or they feel like they have to be done with the Bible for good, that it's got nothing to say to them or nothing to teach them about God or the world. And I think there's a lot of us who are like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, you don't have to throw it out. We just have to rethink how we engage it. And so it's it's a great thing to see happening. And I will say, I loved Pete's latest book. I, I really think that's maybe the best, um, except I will say that I think my cover is the prettiest of all the books. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. agreed. See, I, I was going recently. for pretty on my cover, too, <laughs> Rachel, and it just didn't work out because I have no artistic sense. So anyway, I have whales and snakes and trees and sun. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Connie Gabbert was the designer. Uh, and you have like, yours is a lot more stark. <laughs> Words and a finger, I think. It's a, it's a nice cover. I'm just saying... No, you're not. That you're is. not saying that at all, Rachel. You're saying it's a bad cover. <laughs> I'm just but saying mine is better. She's just saying hers is better. This is <laughs> yeah, good, good, bad. Good point. Good point. <laughs> good. You were going to go someplace with that, Jared, weren't you? I, I was. I thought it would be a good to um, come back around and say, you know, what has been some of the Basically, when you talk about new things, we talk about all these exciting ways that now the Bible can be read in new ways. But along with the new comes kind of a pain of letting go of the old. So I'm sure there's been some pushback or some criticisms of oh, we can't just change how we read the Bible. We can't just look at it differently. So maybe what are some things, what are some pushback that you've gotten or maybe some what are some things that you've learned as you've now gotten this book out into the world about the Bible or about how strongly people feel about the Bible? Yeah. I mean, one way I would actually push back on that is that, that you know, what we're talking about are not really new ways of reading the Bible. The, the new ways were when we were trying to force the Bible into the genre of science and history and when we were trying to, to make the Bible say one thing or, frankly, the conversation around inerrancy is actually the product of a, a modern culture. We haven't always engaged the Bible this way. I don't think Jesus engaged Scripture that way. So it's not exactly like new ways of reading the Bible. <laughs> I think it's new to some people, but it's not really new to the the story of the Bible. Um, and so 
one thing I do when when people challenge me in that way is I point to how Jesus engaged scripture, which was with a lot more um, sort of imagination and play. I talk about Midrashic interpretations of scripture and how Midrash uh, engages the Bible. So this is you know the Jewish tradition of reading between the lines of scripture and sort of filling in the blanks and raising questions about uh, the text and wrestling with the texts and not necessarily expecting quick or easy answers from the text. That's that's an ancient tradition that's been around for many, many centuries. So what we're really calling for is I don't think is a new way of reading the Bible, but more of an old way of reading the Bible, which is with um, more respect for the genres that are present there, uh, more respect for the cultures from which Scripture emerged, and more respect for the fact that, you know, it's not a rule book. It's not um, a magic eight ball. You know, this is, as Pete so eloquently puts it, you know, a book of wisdom uh, that's meant to guide us to wisdom. And um, yeah, so, I, you know, it's not really new. So that's how I, I respond to people because that's usually the challenge you get, you know, is, oh, this Rachel Held Evans doesn't even have a seminary degree and she's telling us how to read the Bible. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, you know what I do have is a literature degree and mm. that actually really helps me understand the Bible better. And I think that I can offer something uh, from that perspective because uh, that really inspired focuses on genre and mm-hmm. uh, the, the how to embrace the genres that are actually present in the Bible instead of misidentifying those genres. And so it's really a, a celebration of that. Um, and I think sometimes people misunderstand that. But I mean, getting back though to your point about this not being new, I think the obstacle a lot of people have is that there's, I mean, I've seen this a lot and I've experienced it, that th- this isn't new. What I mean, this is new because the way we read the Bible goes all the way back to Jesus. It's like th- this is – they're taught that, that this sort of rationalistic yeah. rule book way of reading the Bible is pretty normal. And in fact, there are a lot of rules in the Bible. I mean, that's one of the pushbacks I've gotten is that – read the Old Testament. There are tons right. of rules <laughs> there. So, so I mean, I think it's, it takes a bit of gentle reimagination of the Bible, maybe even reeducation of the Bible to to sort of see that – yeah, maybe like you're saying, maybe we're not really respecting the context very much here when we talk about it this way. Maybe there's something else about the Bible that's more valuable, even if it's not as tidy and comforting as what we're used to. Yeah. And that's not necessarily something people want to hear because <laughs> it's a little scary. But it's also really liberating, I think, to engage the Bible in this way because it's sort of like, I mean— the story of Abraham and Isaac always bugged me, like, since childhood. <laughs> but I was kind of told, you're not allowed to be bothered by this. It's in the <laughs> Bible, you know? Uh, but that should that story should upset every child and every parent um, who encounters it. And so it was to discover that this is not some, you know, rogue new idea to be bothered by that story that— rabbis have been wrestling with it for centuries was so liberating and so encouraging. And it's not like, um, yeah. And so I think for a lot of people, some people will, will be defensive about it because, you know, nobody likes to be challenged and about something as important as the Bible. Um, but for a lot of people who have had kind of these secret quiet doubts, I think, you know, a new way of, of, a new to them way of engaging the Bible is incredibly liberating and and um, kind of something they've been looking for for forever. Even like, life giving. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we kind of know instinctively that a story that has a talking snake in it and a magic tree is not science. Like we know <laughs> that we we, but we have been conditioned to go against our own instincts about that text and to try and force it into a scientific account of how the world came to be instead of, you know, an ancient Eastern creation myth uh, because we're not allowed, you know. There's a deeper challenge, though, to that in 
it's not just about the the Bible. We we've been conditioned not to trust ourselves. Period, uh, mm-hmm. because of yes. all kinds of things. So yes. you can't trust your feelings, or you can't trust yes. what you because you're bad and only God is good. Which is usually just a mm-hmm. way of saying the white dude in the pulpit yep. knows better, and so you just Preach better Jared. trust him. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I get on a soapbox about that. But I, when, I wanted to mention that the irony of what you're saying a little bit um, from from what I'm hearing you and Pete talk about here is we almost have to go back in order to go forward because this quote unquote new way of reading the Bible as a textbook or as a science book, what the challenge is, is there's no way to reimagine. It doesn't flex. We mm. can't make it relevant for today. It just has one meaning and we're stuck there. But if we go back to the ancient church, they had ways of reading the Bible that were way more flexible and were allowed to be updated. And so in some ways, this rationalistic uh, sort of rigid science, uh, the Bible is a science book way of reading the Bible is only possible because for generations before it, we had ways of updating what the Bible means for contemporary cultures and communities. And so in some ways for us to be able to make the Bible relevant again to us, we have to kind of go pre-1900 and and then we can kind of jump back and say oh now we can make it mean something again for us is that making sense yeah i mean you see it happening in real time in the epistles even see jesus taking scripture that i wouldn't necessarily think touches on the topic he makes a touch on uh, do it like kind of bending scripture and playing with it and then imagining it in a new context that was that's how jesus engage the Bible. That's how the early church, uh, the epistles, we see, you know, mm-hmm. even Paul engaging scripture that way. So it seems like we've got a, a great precedent for it. It's just, it's been, it's a recent phenomenon that the Bible has become so rigid and inflexible. Um, and so, yeah, the, to, it's exciting to invite people into that. It was exciting for me to, to, to feel invited into that process. And it's exciting to then invite other people into it because it's just, it's so, um, it's freeing and it's, it's helpful. It's, it's instructive. Um, and it makes me actually want to go back to the Bible again. It actually makes me love the Bible again and enjoy reading it and engaging it with other people and, you know, getting different people's takes on it. Like I'm not threatened anymore when somebody interprets a passage differently than I do. It's like, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it that way, mm. you know, or, um, you know, just encountering like womanist interpretations of, uh, you know, Hebrew scripture has been so eye-opening and um, instructive for me. And, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that before because, well, this, you know, the story of Hagar means just one thing. You know, now it's like, well, how a black woman reads the story of Hagar is very different than how I read the story of Hagar and I've got something to learn from mm-hmm. uh, a black woman about that text. Um, and so it's like, you don't have to be afraid of other people uh, seeing things differently than you and bringing their, their, you know, cultural background and their race and their gender and, and, and everything that makes us who we are, bringing that to the text. Cause the, the idea was always sort of like, well, you have to set all that aside as if we can, uh, and approach the Bible objectively. To this day, I get guys telling me that, well, I prefer to take an objective approach to the Bible. <laughs> it's like they have no idea that like being a white dude at a right. Baptist seminary is actually also a social location. You know, that <laughs> we're all socially located somewhere. Well, you, you don't um, think then, that way if you're in power. <laughs> right. Usually, right. You so. don't. You don't. Yeah. And that's what I think. Like, I would say the response to Inspired has actually been the best response I've ever had to a book. Um, and I don't know if it's because it's just, you know, a remarkable work of literary genius or mm-hmm. if it's just like the evangelicals are done with me so they yeah. don't really <laughs> bother to challenge me anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's been really well received, but I would say that the the, the biggest pushback is, is usually from dudes who are in seminary or recently graduated from a conservative seminary who think, you know, that they have sort of the objective truth on yeah. the Bible and that, you know, the rest of us are um, reading too much into it or... Well, you know, um, I get that too. I mean, I, I'm not just being funny. I, I get that from young men who are in seminary, who have just graduated, who they see the world very clearly. Yeah. And, you know, I just don't respond. 
You know, it, it won't, <laughs> only because it just it won't do much good. But um, but yeah, that, that's the thing because they're ta- they. It's almost like it's not their fault. They're they're taught a certain way within a system to not have flexibility in their to not allow for interpretive flexibility, which is what you're talking about. You know, throughout history, and the thing about you know, you mentioned context. Like taking context seriously is taking the Bible seriously, and I agree with that. But when we think of context, we usually just think of like, okay, what's happening in the first century when Paul's writing letters? Well, the Romans were in charge, or you know, what what was happening in the seventh century BC or something. Part of historical context is also a hermeneutical context, mm. how people read texts. Yeah, and and that's what we don't take seriously. You know, we uh, with evangelicalism, it's all about you know the grammatical historical method. Right, read the read the words, and what's the historical context, and you interpret things in light of that. But there's also a what I call confusing a hermeneutical historical method, which is in Paul's mm. day and Jesus's day, they handle text differently. Yeah, and if you don't embrace that and learn something from it, you have a low view of scripture. Yeah, even if Absolutely. that's not the way modern people do it, it doesn't matter. We we have yeah. to turn that lens back on ourselves, and the Bible becomes something that even critiques our ways of thinking instead of imposing that onto the Bible. Maybe yeah. that's what people are really after in one way or another. And it makes it a little harder in some ways, you know, because, you know, you were the first person, I think, to introduce me to this, the, the idea that when Paul wrote about Adam, you know, the way he was writing was not, um, not the way I thought he was writing. <laughs> you know, the way he was engaging those texts was not the way that I had been taught we were supposed to engage biblical texts. So, um, yeah, it takes some education. You have to to um, study it. And I think one reason why we get the pushback from the dudes fresh out of seminary is because they feel like, well, I just got my education <laughs> on the Bible, and I know more than you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a third context you have to bring to it, and that's our own social context yes. that we carry to it. Right. And that's what's so it's so hard to convince people that um that they that they don't have a hermeneutic that they 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 didn't um come to this conversation with a lot of built-in assumptions that need to be challenged and and taken apart so um you know there's there's that's the that's what i feel like i just can't ever get through <laughs> to mm-hmm. people is you know actually you know being a white dude in texas in seminary is a social location from which you are engaging the Bible, and there you've got a whole lot of assumptions you just brought. Um, and it, that doesn't mean that you're wrong about everything. It just you just have to be aware of that. And once mm-hmm. you kind of are aware of that, and you you take the humility lesson from it, then I feel like well, we can start to talk. But until that happens, it's kind of it's kind of useless. <laughs> yeah, it's you know I think that is a it's a it's a big ask for people. You know, I think you you mentioned you have a hard time getting that through to people, and I would say I have a similar challenge. But I I've learned to recognize what I'm ask actually asking people to mm. do when I ask yeah. them to do that. In a lot of ways, it, it, there is a humility, but I think under that there's a fear, and, and mm. rightly so, because if you acknowledge your own provisional uh, social location you've immediately said something about what it means to be human in the universe that I think scares a lot of people. Yeah. And so there's a lot of baggage. It sounds so simple to say, you know, the white um, male Texan is all uh, something, like you're not seeing the world as it is, you're seeing it as a white American. That's a very uh, threatening sentence for people. Yeah. And yeah. so it kind of like, how do we walk people through that's just a, it's a big ask. I think it's a big jump. So I'm always curious of what are smaller steps we can take before we get there to help yeah. people so that that doesn't feel like such a, and I don't think people can articulate it as a leap, but now kind of looking back and having gone down that slippery slope, I recognize what a leap it is. I think it's the classic, you have to make people think it was their idea, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where, so you kind of have to, um, you go to, what has been helpful for me is to go to those texts that I know bother other people like Abraham and Isaac. And, you know, you guys do this really well, it, highlighting those stories that we all kind of know are problematic to the paradigm that we're trying to force onto the Bible. And so, you know, you've got everything from Proverbs that overtly contradict one another to 
you know, the story of Job sitting there like this fault line right in the middle of Scripture <laughs> to, you know, stories about God commanding people to kill every man, woman, and child in a city. You cannot say that that is a good and moral thing. And people know that, I think. And so to me, it helps to start in a place where start with people's start with those texts that make people uncomfortable. Those are really important texts instead of, I don't know, going to the typical battlegrounds. Uh, we go to, you know, the story of Jephthah's daughter or um, you know, some of the texts of terror or, you know, something like that. And usually most people, if they have any humility, will say, well, you know, that story has always kind of bothered me. Or, yeah, I always noticed that that was kind of a contradiction. Or, yeah, there's no getting around that, you know, the gospel writers present the resurrection in some pretty different ways. Uh, and and start from there. Uh, and usually, I feel like, I don't know if there's any openness at all. And if there's a sense that this is okay and you're not alone, people will kind of be willing to go there with you. But you're right. There's a lot to kind of give up. There's a lot of power to give up. And there's also, I mean, Pete can talk about this. There's jobs you could lose. There's mm. associations that you can get kicked out of. And there's book sales that can plummet. Jen Hatmaker will tell you about that kind of thing. Yes, you know, yes. if you if you do go a, a, a different direction than the marching orders. Well, and that's the challenge, right? It's it's not even that it's not even that you have to go in a different direction. You just have to admit that maybe there is another direction that you could go in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that like the people who disagree with you are still Christians. Yeah, <laughs> even just acknowledging that can get you kicked out of certain seminaries and certain colleges. And so there's no freedom at all because I I talk to so many people. You would not even believe the number of messages I get from pastors and you know people who are associated with particularly evangelical academic institutions who are tracking with things that I'm writing, and, but who they can't tell anybody. It's a secret because mm -hmm. they'll lose their jobs. And the agony that that creates in people, it breaks my heart because they're not able to really be themselves, to, to, to engage their peers, the people they work with, the people you know, studying under them, the people who are, they are pastoring, they can't actually be honest with any of those people because out of fear that they'll lose their jobs. And this, I mean, it, sometimes it comes down to the, just the practicality of I have to pay the water bill. So I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you what I really think about Genesis or I can't tell you what I really think about homosexuality. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, yeah. It's almost like the mark of the beast. Yeah. Like they can't buy or sell. They're part of this system, mm -hmm. you know, where they have to have a certain, and I get it. I mean, I'm not I'm not really being critical even. It's just the reality of it is that you're part of something and you can't it's all wrapped up in economics. Yeah. You know, we had propaganda on earlier this season and that he talked about that a lot and the realities of that are you think about it. You know, you can't be curious about your faith because you won't be able to pay your rent or mortgage. Right. Like, yeah. What what's what's wrong with this picture? Yeah. This is this is what this is all about. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And in, and for a lot of people, you know, the people that you talk to, the people that we talk to, a lot of that has to do with really how you look at the Bible and how you use it and what you think it is and and deconstructing that is really painful. It's it's difficult for people. They just, I mean, I, I and we both understand that, yeah. right? It's it's not it's not the easiest thing in the world. So you can't force them into yeah. it. Well, yeah. Well, you you mentioned deconstruction, but I think I wanted to just kind of pull back what Rachel had mentioned earlier about the book, uh, the Bible as a wisdom book, and your book, new book, Pete talks about that um, how the Bible actually works. So I, I thought maybe let let's talk a little about what's next. Like, what do we do with the Bible now? And I think, Rachel, it's, you know, in your book, Inspired, I think you do some really wonderful things about how to read this text now in light of all the things that you're learning about science and, and genre and context and history. And like Pete said, how did the ancient people, how would they have interpreted the Bible? So what would you say is kind of what's a way forward? How do you help people point that out? Yeah. I mean, I think the trick is to to make it fun, to make it uh, meaningful to people, because uh, like a lot of times these conversations just get very academic really quickly. Uh, and so my goal with Inspired was to make it 
immersive and enjoyable again. So that's why I did all of the, you know, the screenplay around the mm-hmm. book of Job and a poem to the Beast of Revelation and, um, you know, <laughs> lots of <laughs> lots of sort of creative soliloquies and, um, you know, creative interpretations of, of familiar stories was because I was trying to pull people into the joy of uh, these stories and the joy of appreciating and respecting the genres that that God chose to communicate to us through, and so I think that's that's a, that was what I was trying to do is to make it fun again, to make it enjoyable and just new and fresh. And so I think the thing we need to do next, I think, is I don't know, show people how wh- why it matters, and to I, I would love to see more liturgy and more preaching go in a creative direction so that we're not, I feel like that we still have these leftovers from really modernist engagement of scripture in our worship services and in our preaching that could stand for some (laughs) deconstructing Mm -hmm. so that we're not preaching the same ways and we're not uh, worshiping in the same ways that you know, for instance, I heard from a lot of people who took, I wrote kind of a liturgy for the victims of the women who are featured in the, they're often called the texts of terror. So mm-hmm. women who are on the bad end of the patriarchy that we find in the Bible, that, you know, the Bible, much of it was written in deeply patriarchal cultures. And so there's no escaping that reality. And I feel like if we're willing, we can listen to the voices of women that are represented in scripture around these stories and and really learn something significant. So I heard from a lot of readers who took a liturgy I wrote around the victims of the texts of terror and and kind of turned it into worship services and even around Ash Wednesday and you know they lit candles for Hagar and for Jephthah's daughter and for the concubine who was dismembered and turned it into sort of a way of respecting and remembering all women who have been victims of patriarchy, who have been victims of, you know, toxic, deadly masculinity. And that's very relevant right now. You know, that's that's something people people really long for a way to connect their faith to what's happening in the world and a way to connect the Bible to what's happening in the world. And it's it's right there, you know, but we're not, we're not, I don't know, we're so afraid to get creative with it because we're still stuck in that. There's a right way to read this story. The story is troubling, so let's tidy it up. Let's fix it up. Let's, let's, I'm a pastor. I have to explain this to my people instead of just letting people wrestle with it for a while, letting people sit with it, you know, asking, you know, what does this story evoke for you and and how does it make you feel and what does it remind you of there's you know i think we need to see that trickle down into churches and into faith communities for it to be effective like for us to write books about it is great but i really want to see more churches and more more leaders pastors lay people people who write liturgies uh, embrace this way of reading the bible and embrace the multitude of options and possibilities in engaging scripture. And I mean, I think a lot of that too just is about trusting lay people to bring their perspectives and creativity to biblical stories. And pastors and leaders need to kind of release a bit of their grip <laughs> on the text and hand it over. Yeah. So so the, the Bible's the Bible's maybe I'm trying to summarize what you're saying here. The Bible's value is at least in part, and how it can be connected to our moment in our world. Yeah. And that takes, that might take some creativity, I guess, to get there, right? Yeah. And it comes to life in the context of a community. Like, it's not meant to, to be engaged alone. <laughs> You're, you know, it's not meant to be like I, your quiet time with God, which is fine. People can have their quiet times with God. But like, that's not really, I don't, I don't think really the purpose is, I, I think, or the invitation that I see in scripture is an invitation to community and to this is what this story is saying to me. And and this is how my community understands this story. Well, this is how my community has always understood this story. Oh, how is that the same? How is that different? You know, what does it say about me too? What does it say about President Trump? You know, like the, I, I guess it, I just feel like it, it, it invites us into conversations with one another mm-hmm. and we can't do that if we're, just reading. <laughs> right. When we interpret, 
you know, we talk about the creativity, and I, I get so energized by thinking of the creativity, but then I immediately go to there's a kind of an abuse of that, and and so I, I think about the way forward in this like two step process, which is first, so like Nehemiah built a wall, so why don't we build a wall? Kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's you, you said yes. that. You said it, not me. Um, King well, Cyrus. I mean, yeah, even just ba- I was thinking, you know, when I was growing up, there was this like Bible that was all about updating all of the prophecies and making them basically set in the Persian Gulf War time. So the locusts were really oh, yeah. helicopters, <laughs> and this is really about the in- like that kind of stuff. So there is though this first step of deep. I think of people who do improv uh, in music, and there's a hmm. deep mastery. Of it, and so when I see Jesus, uh, when I see Jesus and others in the Bible, and even Jewish scholars today doing creative readings, it's not made up out of thin air, but is out of this deep respect and mastery of the nuances yeah. and the trajectories and the themes and all of that. And so, uh, do you find that as well? That you know, as you wrote this book, you had to have this deeper understanding of what's going on in order to kind of faithfully translate it into these other ways. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think that's definitely true. And it's like, I mean, you know, inspired, it's footnoted to death because, you know, that poem, (laughs) you know, or that um, little piece of fiction that I wrote was actually, you know, very much informed by the scholarship that I was reading. And so, yeah, absolutely. Like having that background, I think, gives us the opportunity to improvise faithfully and you know, in um, in concert with tradition and with what we know from the scholarship about the world from which the Bible mm-hmm. emerged. But I also think that there is there is something about the Bible that even the untrained sort of layperson can read significant truths into it without that background. And that the problem is less that people bring naivete to the script to scripture and more that they get talked out of Mm. (laughs) their initial encounters and engagement with scripture if that makes sense i mean even like you know the the persian gulf war stuff where it's like people saying that you know the bible is a prophesying about u.s engagement in foreign wars you know that people get taught that from somebody you know i don't know that it necessarily um I don't know if your first encounter with Scripture pushes that exactly. So, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to say that there, there's a, a balance. There's wisdom. Mm. There is wisdom to be sought in both, you know, making sure that improvisation happens faithfully. Yeah, You have to sit with the tradition. You have to earn the right, so to speak, to do that well. And that doesn't mean there's one way of doing it, but that's very different from – I think I'll make this talk about the Persian Gulf War. Right. Well, and even I think that we also have to make the distinction between like even as a pastor and even now I would say I've never really had a problem with the person in the pew and in the congregation devotionally reading their Bible and having it mean something that they tell me. I'm like, well, that's a that's a huge stretch. I know the plans (laughs) I have for you, says the Lord. (laughs) That's about Israel. but I haven't really I think that's kind of the the way you do it when you first exit seminary, when you haven't had those experiences mm, and the wisdom, yeah. where you think it's your job to like correct every person. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. at the place where I don't, I don't have the energy for that. And I actually celebrate that because they're, it's more the leadership. I think I hold, I hold people who mm. are doing that, like what Pete talked about on behalf of other people. That's when I w- will say, Hey, it's one thing to play the trumpet in your basement and just make up whatever you want. And that can be a beautiful thing. But then to parade as though you're like the conductor of an amazing orchestra or that you have it all together and you're teaching other people how to do it poorly. I have a much different interpretation of those, I guess. Yeah. And you have to kind of look at the fruit of various interpretations. Like if somebody is is reading the Bible, you know, in a, in, in a more simplistic way, more devotionally maybe, but but the fruit in their life is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, or if, you know, if they're loving God and loving their neighbor well because of, of the words they encounter in Scripture, you know, I, I think that then it's it's doing its job, you know. Uh, if it's bringing people into community with one another, you know, saying these psalms and singing these songs together without necessarily understanding exactly where they come from, then 
that's okay. That's kind of how that's you know that's that's okay with me. Um, it's it's. Are you saying how how well we love is more important than how well we know I our am, doctrine? I am saying that you know, that but if it dicey. makes you that is dicey. <laughs> if it makes you say, well, it doesn't matter what we do to Palestine, or if it makes you say, um, you know, how we ch- treat you know, our neighbors doesn't matter. If it, it makes you careless and unkind and cruel to people, like well, then obviously. There's well, that's problem. the problem is it's not um, but obvious, I think that actually, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think what you just said is obvious. It has a lot less to do with like your knowledge of scripture and a lot more to do with just the posture of your part and um, and your humility and openness to, to wisdom, I think. So it's like, you know, I've seen people engage scripture, you know, in more simplistic mm-hmm. ways, but in ways that are really life-giving. And that's what I think is is the power and flexibility of scripture because, I mean, you know, even like, you know, there are communities that that draw from the prophets and from the story of Exodus. You know, they're not, you, know, you think about just what the story of Exodus has meant to black people in the U.S. It means something different for them than it does if you look at it from a strictly sort of, did this really happen or not? What's the background? What's the culture? You know, what's the, what was happening there at a very literal level? You know, but the the sort of the magic of scripture is that let my people go echoed, yeah. <laughs> you know, from that ancient, completely different context into and spoke with power and authority into a new context. That's kind of the magic of it. That's why it, it's not like anything else, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, and these were enslaved people with very little education uh, who were engaging the scripture that their the slave owners gave to them. In- well, you know, I mean, not to make it an either or, but let me just for sake of discussion, put it this way. Rather than thinking of the Bible solely as this like authority over us, it's more like a sacred partner mm. with our experience. Yeah. And so it's, it does speak different. It's almost becomes like a means of grace and not a, well, the rule book or the owner's manual thing is this. Let, let's, we, we look at context to constrain our interpretive possibilities, and that's partly good, so you don't say absolutely crazy things. But part of that context is also watching how the Bible interprets itself, how, mm-hmm. how biblical – I don't even like putting it that way how, – how people of faith of old reinterpreted their own ancient tradition, which right. eventually wound up becoming the Bible. Right. Right. Because I think, you know, Job is critiquing Deuteronomy, maybe not Deuteronomy as a book, but at least the idea of theology in Deuteronomy where it's tit for tat and God's a bit transactional and maybe even retributional, and he's sort of critiquing that. So you have that, you have that movement within the Bible, this, this refusal to simply allow a tradition to have meaning that's not connected to your own immediate experience. Right, and that's and that's the very thing that we and you know this and Jared and I we talk about this a lot. That's what you're told not to trust. Mm. You cannot. Your experience is irrelevant. Yeah, it has to conform to scripture. And I'm right. like, okay, what I see in scripture is tradition conforming to experience. Now, how do you want me to handle that one? You know? Right. It's, I'm it's so there. glad you mentioned that. Yeah, <laughs> like and Jared put it so well. Like we're taught not to trust anything about. Our instincts, our feelings, our, you know, women, we especially get this. Like, this is one of my most common criticisms. Rachel Hull Evans just writes whatever she feels. You know, she's interpreting the Bible based on how she feels about it. And it's very gendered. It's definitely a gendered accusation. I mean, if you were in the garden, you would have taken a bite of that fruit before anybody else. (laughs) We're so gullible. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah, but we're, I don't know if this goes back to, you know, wonky teachings about original sin or what it is, but we're told that we can't trust anything that we feel or think, or we can't even trust our conscience. We have to bend it all to Scripture, but what we're bending it to is the other people's interpretation of Scripture. So it's 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 so unhelpful. And so um, I think it's why people become so vulnerable to authoritarianism, uh, is because they've been told you can't trust your heart, you can't trust your mind, you can't trust you know, your science degree. You can't trust your instincts about anything. You just have to trust the Bible. And by that, they usually mean me, my (laughs) interpretation of it. You have to trust me. And that's why, I mean, that's what makes people vulnerable to that sort of, 
exploitation, the exploitation of people who who can boss other people around because people turn into zombies, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't yeah. believe what I think. I can't believe what I well, feel. Well, let me ask you, though, Rachel. Here, here's a question that I, I'm going to guess you've gotten to, as I've gotten it many, many times. Okay, and I see what you're saying, um, but you're sort of taking the Bible away as a foundation for my faith. So what now does my faith rest on? So what do you say to that? Jesus. <laughs> but I mean, how do we? But how do we know Jesus? Only from the Bible, which I right. mean, I'm Episcopalian, so I'm like, yeah. uh, I also encounter Jesus in communion. <laughs> right. I encounter Jesus in sacrament. I encounter Jesus. In... We well, see we're getting back to experience there, right? I mean, that's the, sort of what I'm after. Exactly, but that's it's hard to make rules around experiences. Um, right. We encounter Jesus in the least of these, like you know. Yeah. It's. Jesus isn't stuck in the Bible. Uh, Jesus, I, I believe Jesus is alive and active in the world. I believe Jesus is Lord and King and sovereign. So I don't know. Like, and just to drive the point home, I think of the importance of experience. You know, you say, well, you know, how do we know about Jesus from the Bible? Yeah. God's little joke, four Gospels. <laughs> and and Paul, who doesn't get along with Peter mm-hmm, or James right. about a fundamental question of of faith in the first century, basically, what about Gentiles? Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's where I think the diversity of Scripture is a not just a thing we have to acknowledge, but actually a very important element for us thinking about how does this Bible work? What is it supposed to be doing? But that's the the very things that we push aside as problems that have to be explained are actually windows. I think yes. onto oh, I love how you something. Put that bigger to look at, which is out of our control. Yeah. I mean, what's the foundation of my faith? I don't even know how to answer that question right now. To be, <laughs> well, you haven't thought about it. No, I thought about it a lot. I don't know how to answer that <laughs> right? question right now. And But the thing is, you know, that doesn't mean I'm sort of outside of the pale of faith or something. I'm, I'm working through stuff the way people have been working through stuff for a long time. And reading yes. behind that question, the real question is, how can I feel safe? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I don't want to be afraid anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I had this thing that helped me not feel afraid. I felt like I had a handle on life. And then when we expose that, hey, surprise, being human means surrendering to there are lots of things you can't control. And that's not silly to sort of to say, you know, we're not mocking people who say, I don't feel safe anymore. Because, right? Because that's, I mean, this is a human thing too. No one wants to be sort of. Oh, there are days out. I'd love to go back, honestly. Yes. Honest to God. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like, it was sure nice when I didn't worry that maybe we made all this up because we're afraid of death. Like, that was nice when I just really yeah. was <laughs> absolutely certain that when I died, I'd go to heaven and I'd see everybody I've loved. Mm-hmm. And like, that was, mm-hmm. it was, it was really nice. And to be right about everything, <laughs> it was great. And to know it. It was oh, a yeah, good, yeah. It was, but I think there's an inevitability to it. Like, if you permit yourself the one question, frankly, <laughs> It does. It snowballs. <laughs> and you're going to ask a lot more questions. And I think people see that happening. And so they just they don't. And I get it. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. But once you start down, it, there's really no turning back. Like once you decide, OK, I don't want to believe this because I'm scared. I want to believe this because it's true. It gets it gets yeah. dicey. Yeah. And and I, the only reason I brought that up was not to it, it's more to expose, I think, there's a lot more feeling and emotion in mm-hmm. how we make decisions about these things. It goes back to that experience thing mm-hmm. um, than we'd like to admit. And I, I, that's one way I've found is to help people be in touch with their emotions. Oh, yeah. And then once we can, because you said once people are aware, well, becoming aware of your emotions is a tricky thing. Yeah. And can take a long time. So That is a yeah. very pastoral take on this, Jared. I appreciate that a lot. Of like, Why are you surprised? <laughs> I'm Why? Because not- because we're, we're men. Because we don't know how to be kind. And no, I was saying Jared has the pastoral <laughs> background and sensibilities that I had not really quite thought of it that way. No. So, yeah. Well, good. So it's, we're going to end on that um, <laughs> compliment to me. Uh, but we we are coming to the end of our time. I can't believe that it's actually uh, been here. You know, over forty minutes already. Can I t- can I tell a fun Pete story? Oh gosh, absolutely. Okay. do that. So Which at one? evolving faith. Uh, it's this conference I hosted with Sarah Bessie this last fall. Uh, he, we had some really, really amazing speakers in like the justice session. It was um, Austin Channing Brown and uh, Sandra Van Opstel and Caitlin Curtis and prop propaganda 
And it was just like fire. It was amazing. People were standing up and cheering and it was like, it was all kinds of truth. And I'm sitting in the green room watching it all come down and Pete turns to me and he goes, Rachel, Rachel, hey, hey, is this woke? <laughs> I was like, yes, um, Pete. This, this is, is pretty woke. good for a 50-year-old white male to at least, at least realize something's happening. It made me and so happy. And then I'm happy. like, there's, what's this? I had such a good time. Pete was so nice to my kids, uh, too. I brought my kids to that, which was like, that's not a thing that's Oh, but they were fun. Again. I know but, it's um, hard to bring kids, but yeah, it was fun. Yeah, but like, it was, when your book came in the mail, I showed it to Henry and turned to the page with your picture on it. And I was like, do you remember Mr. Pete? And he shook his head. Uh, yes, I remember that's Mr. Adorable. Pete. You were really oh, sweet to him. So thanks for that. <laughs> good. Well, is there anything here that other projects that you're working on you said you you know you coordinated this uh, evolving faith event you have the book i'm sure you have a lot going on is there where can people uh, find more of what you're up to or do you have a specific project you wanted to point out oh oh one thing just to say is you know what, what we were just talking about in terms of like how feelings and emotions are a lot more part of this than we realize that's actually kind of kind of my next writing project is around that so I'll, i might be quoting you jared Go for <laughs> um, it. Uh, about so it's it's trying to get into this whole you can't trust yourself mm. mentality because I felt I, I just seemed like I kept bumping into that again and again and again when we got really personal talking about this stuff people would go there well I just you know my sin nature yeah. makes it impossible for me to really trust myself or to read the Bible objectively or you know, whatever it is so I really am dissecting that in this next project it doesn't have a title or anything it's got a publisher but so that's just to say I think we hit on something that I think is important, actually. So that's what I've been thinking about and working on. Um, and then, yeah, we have the Why Christian last Why Christian conference coming up in April, and then we'll have another Evolving Faith conference next fall. The last one? Yeah, it's the last one. We just we never expected to do more than one, and so this is wow. number four. And we thought, all right, we've been everywhere. You know, we've done kind of the West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, South. It's time to mm-hmm. to wrap it up. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but uh, kind yeah. of sad that it's that it's wrapping up. But it was that I, I that's an event I do with Nadia Bolzmiller, mm-hmm. and um, it's just it's really cool. We all just talk mm-hmm. about why we're Christians, <laughs> which is a question people don't ask themselves right. or each other enough. I don't think so. Yeah, so that's kind of what's going on. You can find everything at RachelHeldEvans.com. An evolving faith in Denver. Is in Denver, right? okay. it's gonna be. I am pumped. We're still still working on our speaker lineup, but. There's somebody in this conversation who has been invited. <laughs> so, Who's that? Uh, yes. And let's see. I forgot to tell you, That's... Pete, you've been you've been left out this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what's happening. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for jumping on. And we, we always very much appreciate conversations with you, Rachel. Yeah. Oh, I enjoy you guys too. I love the podcast. And you both have had a huge impact in uh, my faith and how I read the Bible. Jared was kind enough to edit like large sections of Inspired and I, that we took your notes and learned a lot from them and took them into consideration. And I rewrote whole sections because of one little note you left. Wow. So, thanks for that. You're very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but really, you guys have, you've just, you've been important voices in my life and I'm grateful. Thanks, for Rachel. Thanks. Appreciate it. All righty. All right. See ya. All right. Friends, as always, thanks for listening and especially to this episode. And rather than our usual send-off, we thought it would be best to let Rachel close things out. So here's Rachel reading from her last book, Inspired, and the chapter called The Well. Most of the time, God does the naming. Abraham, Isaac, Israel. Just one person in all your sacred scripture dared to name God. And it wasn't a priest, prophet, warrior, or king. It was I, Hagar, foreigner, woman, slave. I do not wish to be remembered as powerless, for power is the currency of men. But before the wilderness, before the naming, my station ranked me among the invisible. Dark skin and a foreign tongue curried little favor in Beersheba, land of the seven wells, where warring tribes marked moments of peace by digging together for water. I belonged to a woman blessed with all the things a woman wants. Wealth, nobility, legendary beauty, and divine favor— but not the thing a woman in an unsettled territory needs, a womb that can carry a boy. Sarah wore her laugh lines like jewelry. She told stories better than anyone I've ever known. The desert wind sent her white hair dancing and carried her unmistakable peals of laughter through the arid atmosphere like rain. 
old and young, men and women, slave and free, ventured to her tent for advice on breeding goats, arranging marriages, spicing food, and offering prayers. And yet, in our world, they called this woman barren. I had the misfortune to belong to a woman who believed the wrong name. So she gave my body to Abraham. Long as I live, I will never forget how casually she informed me of my duty, rattled off at the end of a list of linens to gather and food to prepare. You will think me callous for not being more angry, more resistant to the charge before me, but bearing the child of a tribal leader, even in another woman's name, carried with it the possibility of more freedom, or at least a challenge to my expendability. The moment the old man rolled away from me, he never once looked me in the eye, I begged the gods of Egypt for a boy. If I survived the birth, I might even live to see him marry. Oh, I begged to every god and every language I knew. A baby's movements don't begin as kicks, but as subtle, enigmatic flutters. They don't tell you that. So I doubted right until the morning when, lying on my side after another night of fitful dreams, I placed my hands on my belly and felt the sudden, certain impression of a heel. No woman can prepare for the awe of it, the overwhelming surge of joy and fear. Instinctively, I looked around for someone to tell, but of course, no one was there. Then came a second nudge, this one longer and firmer as if to say, don't you dare think yourself alone, Mama. We're here in this world together. My baby had yet to take a breath of air, and already we shared a secret. That must have been the moment I started singing, little fractures of the lullabies I remembered from my mother, a woman whose skin I think smelled of saffron and whose voice I think was soft and deep as a dove's. The memories of slaves are dappled ones. Perhaps I sang a bit too loudly. Perhaps I carried myself with more confidence than before. Your scribes will say I grew contemptuous of my mistress, but your scribes never asked for my view of it. The only thing I know is that for every day my belly grew rounder, Sarah's spirit grew stormier, a wind-assailed reed about to break. A slave expects harsh words and withheld rations, but the physical abuse surprised me. Taunts turned to slaps, barked orders to mule whips to the back. I would not have fled had she not threatened the baby's life. I want you to know that. I would not have taken the risk of running into the desert in the dead of night with only a jug of water and some stolen bread to sustain me had I not feared the worst. Abraham did nothing, of course, my mute idols even less. Did they even notice? Could they even see? Your scribes will remember it as a silly woman's spat, an anecdote to explain how this cursed land grew populated, but your scribes never carried a baby through the desert. Your scribes never knew the singular desperation of counting the hours from the last assuring kick. I took the road to Shur, the closest thing I knew to home, But as the sun rose like a great unseeing eye over the fifth or sixth mile, and the weight of my pelvis numbed my legs, I collapsed into the dust. Water gone, food regurgitated, blood streaking down my thighs, I waited there to die, or to deliver, or both. Who will find my body, I wondered. What story will they tell of it? Then, on the rippling horizon, a well. I crawled to it, plunged my face in. I think I must have fainted there or slept. All I know is when I opened my eyes, a stranger stood beside me, a presence neither male nor female, neither Egyptian nor Hebrew, neither safe nor threatening, and in a voice that sounded like my mother's, spoke. Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? This stranger knew my name. I am fleeing from my mistress, I answered. What could I say of where I was going? Go back to Sarah, the stranger said, but do not be afraid. Not only will this child live, but through him, I will give you a whole nation of descendants, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, too numerous to count. I cannot tell you why, but immediately I believed. The stranger with the voice of a dove spoke with the authority of God. Your son will grow into a fighter, God said, a wild donkey of a man. But even as he struggles, he will survive. Call him Ishmael, for it means God hears, and God has heard you in your misery today. In spite of everything, I smiled at the part about the donkey, for already I knew how that boy kicked. Every mama is something of a prophet. You may think a prophecy of struggle and strife would dishearten a pregnant mother, but a slave does not struggle or strive, a slave only obeys. If the prophecy was true, it means this boy, my Ishmael, would be free. With what force I could muster, I rose to face God, the brightness of the sun obscuring both our faces. I knew it was the God of my mistress, whom she called Yahweh, 
But if I was to be the mother of a nation, I would need to give this God a new name. You are a God who not only hears, but also sees, I said, surprised by the strength of my voice. I have seen the one who sees me. So I named God as I named the well, El Roi, the God who sees. And it was a name remembered, for as your scripture reports, that is why the well was called Beer Laharoi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Many of my sisters would draw from that well. The Hebrew midwives who defied Pharaoh by delivering the babies of slaves. The despised Samaritan who scandalized a town for daring to speak to the Messiah. The young women ripped from their homes in West Africa and shipped like livestock across the sea. The mamas who saw their boys lynched and the grandmas who saw their grandsons gunned down. The millions of black and brown people whose names the world has forgotten but whose God never failed to see the fierce female prophets and preachers who rose from the ashes of their suffering and dared, like me, to survive and to name. I, too, would return to it, years later when Sarah banished me to the wilderness again, this time with a boy clinging to my legs. My faith, like Abraham's, was tested. But my faith, unlike the patriarchs, was not immortalized in Caravaggio's reds or Chagall's blues for later generations to view, nor was it remembered in the litany of Hebrews or in the genealogies of your New Testament. Yet just one person in all your sacred scripture dared to name God, and it wasn't a priest, prophet, warrior, or king. It was I, Hagar, foreigner, woman, slave. Don't you dare forget. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.